iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we are talking about wonderful wins for Tottenham, Aston Villa, Bournemouth and Fulham. We'll also be discussing more worrying times for Chelsea. And I might just try and sneak in a mention of Hartlepool United. Because today, joining me, Tom Clark, not only do we have our usual Monday superstars, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson, but we are also joined by a legend of the football reporting world. Jeff Stelling is with us. Jeff, welcome to the Game Podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. Big win for our lot of the weekend, by the way. It was, yeah. 5-1 against Liverpool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, the, the city of Liverpool, I think, oh, technically. Oh, I wondered why Mo Salah didn't get a mention. Technically. But, you know, FA Trophy, big trophy. You've got to be in it to win it, haven't you? Absolutely. Um, now, you've just come from several hours talking sport on your new TalkSport breakfast show, uh, which is every Monday and Tuesday, 6 till 10. Have you got some chaff, chat left in the tank for us? That's the question. Yeah, a little bit. And, and in those four hours... There's probably about an hour of talking sport, and the rest of it is is talking anything we want to, whether it be Christmas movies, favourite songs, you know, best bands, that sort of thing. You know, it's um, it was Whamageddon this morning. Whamageddon, I had never heard. <laughs> Have you heard of Whamageddon? Only when you told me about it. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of Whamageddon. Is this before. the game where you try not to listen to Last Christmas uh, for yes. as long as possible? Yes. And so, in introducing that, we played Last Christmas. Right. <laughs> Which and thereby ruined it yeah. for anybody who might have wanted to get involved. I've know. got to say, I, don't, I think that's a little bit harsh. I don't know whether you've all seen the George Michael documentary that came out recently, but I found myself with huge admiration for the man <laughs> and that song. So I don't see why it's such a bad thing to listen to Last Christmas. It's not a bad thing at all. I love Last Christmas. It's great. And by the way, the Times is going to get people into a lot of trouble with their Christmas party guide. <laughs> which we also talked about this morning. Things you should do at a Christmas party. Drink a lot, snog, and wear comfortable... <laughs> and then pick your P45 up the next day. You know? um, well, having attended the Times Christmas party, I can safely say that none of those things happened. <laughs> it was a nice early night because we were all working very hard. Uh, now, Jeff, back to your return to the radio. And I say return because mm. I saw a tweet from your son which was, I dare I say, slightly mischievous, as well as it being nice and sentimental. Slightly. Saying, Fantastic to hear Dad back on the radio some 70 or 80 years after he first started out. <laughs> but it, that is true, isn't it? You, you returned to radio after a long it, time in Not 70 or 80 years, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I started in radio when I was, what, 21? So in those are the sort of embryonic days of independent local radio when anybody could get a job, quite frankly, which is how I got a job in the first place. So that was 40-odd years ago. I've had 
you know, little spells, you know, worked for Five Live for, for a while. Um, I worked for Five Live when it was Radio 2 uh, in those days. And um, I'd done the odd show at Talk Sport, just the odd show previously. But I gather that Kelvin McKenzie was in charge at the time. And Kelvin did not like my northern tones. Really? One jot. He used to call me Hospital Radio Jeff. Goodness oh. me. So, um, allegedly, <laughs> Hospital Radio Jeff. Um, and, and consequently, I didn't appear too often. Well, so. Gregor and I would have never got a job either. We'd have been struggling. No chance. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> Gregor, do you have any happy memories of Hartlepool United? Any trips there back in your playing days? Yeah, I was just saying to Jeff, and the, it was definitely the good old days of Hartlepool United when there was the legend that Richie Humphreys was turning out every week, Andy Monkhouse, mm. Richie Barker, Evan Horwood, some players that uh, Hartlepool United fans will definitely know. Maybe not all listeners of the game podcast. Uh, and I also remember a fond, fondly a, a 5-0 win against them on the opening day of the season once. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that, that was for crew. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, we were often slow starters. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, you know, people like Richie Humphreys. It's just a, he's a legend of the club. And of course, he's done great work in football as well. Yeah. And when you think of how he, he started out as Sheffield Wednesday, he's going to be the next big thing. Yeah. He could easily have got disillusioned when he found himself playing in, in the lower leagues, but he was. A brilliant, brilliant servant of this football club to Hartnable. Mm. Um, just fantastic. And yes, they were the halcyon days, really, as far as we were concerned. Yeah, Knocking well, in the door of the championship then. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't. <laughs> Listen, it's 2005, okay. playoff final. Yeah. Um, against Sheffield Wednesday. And we're 2-1 up with six minutes to go. Six minutes away from the championship for the first time in our history. And this was against a side we'd beaten 3-0 a couple of weeks before as well. And um, I'll tell you a little story. I was doing some preview stuff on Soccer M beforehand with a guy, I can't remember his name now, but he's a, he a ginger-haired chap. Uh, he's an actor from Coronation Street who had been killed by his wife who'd attacked him with a spanner, okay, in Coronation Street. And I'm chatting away about this game, and he said, look, he said, look at the fans. He said, Sheffield Wednesday. We deserve to be in the championship. We're a big club. You guys, you can just enjoy having a nice day out. And I said to him at the time, I said, I understand why she hit you over the head. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Nothing nothing gets gets my goat more than the big club chat. Oh, yeah. uh, looking at you, Alison Rudd, and your Liverpool point, supporters. Tom's a Lincoln City fan. I'm Should a Lincoln out. City fan. So I can say wholeheartedly, National League, it's not all it's not all bad. It can be good fun, especially when, when you, you get, get promoted. Out yeah, well, we did that, of course, and carelessly got relegated back in there mm. two seasons later. So as opposed to your guys who just went... Yeah, it just kept going. We've managed yeah. to stick around, yeah, yeah, but absolutely. But I can honestly say that getting out of the National League was my best day as a Lincoln City fan. So hopefully you can get to experience that again soon. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, look, I mean, the playoff final that we had, a, however many years ago it was now, against Exeter was also probably my best day in football when... Um, you know, like so many playoff finals, it went to a shootout. They'd equalised. We scored early on, and they equalised um, in the the ninety fourth minute. Did I say Exeter? Goodness me, forgive me, it's Torquay. Mm-hmm. Um, they equalised in the ninety fourth minute through their goalkeeper, the goalkeeper yeah. who, who came up. You know, it was just unimaginable. And you, to be brutally honest, they deserved at least to an extra time. But our boys were on their knees. On their knees, there was no way that we could survive the extra half hour. But we did. We got to the penalty shootout. And Nicky Featherstone, who was our go-to penalty taker, 
club captain, brilliant guy, takes the first penalty and it's saved. And you think, oh, no. And then their centre-forward misses his first penalty. Second penalty, we've been reprieved. It's saved again. And you think you can't miss your first two penalties and go through. But we did. Mm. You know, we won the penalty shootout eventually and it was joyous. I mean, it was just such a joyous day. It was. It was one of those games, I was in the office at the time, and it was one of those where if you can capture people with lower league football, yeah. you really get them. Because it was one of those where lots of people were watching Premier League, but I had the match on my screen, and I kind of started shouting every night, what are you watching? What are you yeah. watching? Oh, watch this. And then by the end of it, everyone had it on their screens. Everyone's gathered around going, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> well, I think uh, it's the following season. If you remember, Wrexham against Grimsby was one of the yeah. all-time great games, you know? And I'd only flicked it on for five minutes, you know? I thought Wrexham will... They'll thump Grimsby, you know, um, and it was just absolutely riveting, mm. absolutely riveting. Speaking of supporters and being fans and engaging with fans, it's obviously something you've done a lot in your job and now with your new TalkSport mm. show, getting listeners ringing in um, with questions and queries and things. Do you think supporting football teams at high and lower levels has changed much over your career in terms of the way we consume football, the way we support football, maybe perhaps now we have a little bit more extreme views quite quickly mm-hmm. than perhaps in the past, or has it always been roughly the same, do you think? Well, we, we have more extreme views because the game, in terms of the media, is more accessible, at least. So, you know, you see every Premier League game. We didn't used to see every Premier League game. We didn't see any top-flight games at, at one time, nothing live anyway. You know, I'm from the era that the only game that you saw live during the course of a year was the FA Cup final, which was why it was such a big deal. And obviously... Because of the the lack of live stuff, you know, and the lack of camera angles and replays, players, officials, they weren't under the sort of scrutiny that they're under now. That is for sure. Um, I think at the top level, the other experience, well, lots of experiences have changed, obviously, you know, it's more comfortable at grounds and so on and so forth. But I think the downside of it is, and I speak from a media perspective, but it's also from a public perspective, the lack of access to players is, Mm. you know, makes me feel distant from top flight teams, to be brutally honest. And I understand it to a degree because now they are superstars. You know, whereas in the 70s, they weren't necessarily superstars. Some were, George Best was, you know, Manchester United players were, but not everyone was a, a superstar. So I, I remember doing a series at Sky called Time of, Time of Their Lives, and we used to have groups of players who'd excelled at one particular time in their careers. So, for instance, we had um, three of the boys from the Lisbon Lions came in to talk about their days um, and lots of things like that. We had three Manchester City players came in to talk about um, football in the 60s when they'd had a great run. Um, the let Franny Lee came in and Mike Summerby came in and uh, Joe Corrigan came in and they were telling me that in the 60s that when they came back from an away game they'd go into the supporters club and have a few drinks with the supporters. Mm. At Christmas, the players would put on a pantomime in the supporters club for the fans. You know, <laughs> Joe Corrigan told me he played Widow Twanky. You know? Um, this needs resurrecting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm already thinking what you played in the panto, Gregor, whenever you were playing. You must have had some, some kind of Christmas party. We used to have to do a panto for the 
for the senior players when we were in the academy. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Let's move on. No. Back to Jeff's story. Back to yeah, Jeff's story. That sounds a little, little, little bit more secretive. Well, we're talking about extreme views and, uh, well, pantomimes. And you could say that some of the results in the Premier League uh, this weekend slightly pantomime feel. Uh, Alison Rudd, you were at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium for a 4-1 win for Tottenham against Newcastle. And I'm going to do my classic Monday morning thing and ask... Is this more important for Tottenham or is it more worrying for Newcastle? <laughs> well, it was a pantomime, I'll tell you that. Yeah. It was, it was. oh, he's behind you. It really was like that. Um, and that's what Kieran Trippier felt like, I think, mm. when uh, facing Son. He was basically falling over his own feet. And when on your monitor at the game, you can see they they, they zone, zone in on the players' faces and you, you see Trippier look absolutely exhausted. It is. It was equally important outcome for both teams in terms of what they'll have to take away from it Spurs were on a poor run with people externally saying oh come on you've got to be pragmatic when you've got key injuries you can't you can't dig in and play even more attacking football and um, Postacoglu proved his point that yes you can you just I mean they they went for it like I've never seen them them go for it before any other team go for it before with that level of injury to key personnel it was astonishing. It was, it was endless, relentless, fun, fun football, and and just just slightly bonkers. Whereas Newcastle were left thinking, oh my goodness, our squad is uh, it's bare bones. We, they have um, eleven, twelve players out. They're looking very, very tired, and they have such an important game on Wednesday. You know, they have to win their Champions League game against AC Milan or they're out they might be out anyway so um, I I mean all I mean I don't really know what Eddie Howe can do he's already picking young players who haven't got much experience um, I think that well's dry anyway he just has to hope that St James's Park does something to get the adrenaline going so they play beyond what they've got left in the tank so it, was, it felt significant for, for both teams, but it was an absolute panto. Mm -hmm. It really was. You mentioned both teams. Uh, it was a great summary. I want to come back to Tottenham. We'll talk about Newcastle in a moment. Jeff, we've discussed Tottenham so much on this podcast this season and so much love for Ange Postacoglu. <coughs> what have you made of him as a character? Mm. You know, these managers that come into a, the Premier League and kind of everyone just falls in love with them. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's an interesting character. I mean, they are the great entertainers, aren't they now? rather like Newcastle were in the Keegan era um, and people say, say he needs to be more pragmatic but he won't be no. he just will not be more pragmatic he will play the game the way he feels it should be played and the great thing is he's at Tottenham where they used to be you know fated with that sort of football all the time but they've gone through these dreary dreary times and uh, Mourinho and Conte, um, so the Tottenham fans love it. Yeah, look, he is a, um, it's a cliche. He's a character. Great, thank goodness for that. Mm. Somebody who, you know, you don't always know the next sentence that's coming out of his mouth when he's asked a question, you know, because he has his own genuine views. Um, and and I, I've loved what he's done so far. I was all, I was already a bit concerned though. Five games out of win, I thought, well, what if they lose at home to Newcastle? What's does Daniel Levy start to get twitchy feet, you know? Mm. Um, 
But anyway, the, the question is irrelevant now because they didn't. It was a pantomime for Newcastle fans, by the way, who were trying to get to the game and get from the game because, <laughs> as ever, our uh, railway services betrayed them in a, a, a big, big way as well. Yeah. yeah, I was expecting there to be empty seats at the UAM, but they, they filled it. They somehow filled they got it. got their tickets. They were all coming for a day out in London. They were all going to come regardless. It was just the getting back that was the issue, you know, because they were, I mean, goodness knows what King's Cross Station was like, but they were pretty much abandoned to their own fate, mm. you know. It was bad enough having seen their team absolutely out on their feet um, and, and thoroughly well beaten. Um without then finding that their day in London had turned into a weekend in London. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It doesn't make it cheaper when you have to spend an extra night in London either. Um, just finishing on Tottenham, Jeff, because mm. I've asked this question to uh, all of our kind of reporters over the last couple of weeks, so it's only fair that you get it as well. You're talking about Tottenham and Postacoglu and being great yeah. entertainers, but you also quite rightly highlight some of the struggles in recent weeks. Where would you see them finishing at the end of the season? Do you think they're a top four side or just falling a bit short of that? My only issue with them, um, I mean, obviously they've got um, Van de Ven to come back and, and James Madison, who any watchers of Soccer Saturday over the last few years will know that um, got a distant love affair with James <laughs> Madison. I just, I just absolutely adore watching him play, you know. Um, it, it's a bit like Sam Thompson with Tony Bellew. It's that sort of thing. Um, although I haven't got to hug him yet. Um <laughs> I'm sure so they, it can be arranged. <laughs> <laughs> so they've got quality players to come back. I worry about the depth of their squad. Mm. I mean, I looked at their bench against Newcastle on Sunday. It's not the strongest of benches, that is for sure. Um, so I could see them falling just short of, of top four. But I balance that up by saying, when you say to me, well, who will finish fourth? or third, whatever. It's a good question because, you know, there are frailties in all of the other sides that are up there pushing at the moment, you mm. know. Um, you don't see Manchester United doing it. I think Newcastle are going to struggle unless they get some of their injured players back and get them back pretty soon and maybe go into the transfer market. Um Fourth or fifth? Fourth or fifth. Don't worry about the rest of the top four. There's more prediction questions coming <laughs> oh, later, yeah. uh, as these guys know too well. Uh, Gregor, I wanted to ask you about Newcastle because a few weeks ago we were talking about um, a defeat for them and you particularly highlighted injuries and Tanali being out and this this is not what Eddie Howe would have expected. But at some point, do we not have to say they do look a little bit like they've dropped? And as Alison pointed out, players like Kieran Trippier, when they're having a bad game, which not only this wasn't the only bad game, he was also Everton. poor against Everton. Yeah. Um, I was working late last night and couldn't believe he looked like the kind of shadow of the brilliant pro that he's been since he joined Newcastle. Is it a combination now of factors, not just injuries, and, but it's also poor form? Yeah, but I mean, poor form can stem from, you know, uh, a workload like these players have had to endure, basically. That's why we always say, you know, squad just, depth, just on, squad depth just is on, so important. Just on that, though, Eddie Howe was asked before the game um, on Sky, you know, are you worried about squad depth? And his answer was, the guys are playing football. You know, they, they, they aren't worried. I, I'm not worried about that. So he wasn't allowing for the squad depth rotation thing to be an excuse. He might be saying that publicly, you know, because his players will hear it, hear yeah. the message. You don't want to, you know, get downbeat in the media before a game. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Trippy, I, I I kind of felt like really sorry as a former fullback watching uh, Trippy being kind of tortured by by Son in this game, and particularly that one in the box where. He kind of dangled a leg and, <laughs> and it led directly to a goal. That's just the worst thing that can ever happen for a fullback. Um, 
but they are down to the bare bones. You look who they're bringing on, like Matt Ritchie, who probably wouldn't get near many many other Premier League teams, mm. uh, and they're they are just down to the bare bones. So um, they said it's like, it felt like a game. Too, Callum Wilson said afterwards it felt like a game too far, and I think you know I think they can admit that. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. But now they've got to refocus for the for the Champions League. Yeah, well, if uh, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium played host to a bit of a pantomime, there can't be any better pantomime than the one that's been going on at Old Trafford for a very, very long time. Uh, Manchester United beaten by Bournemouth 3-0. Uh, we almost predicted this on Thursday's show, didn't we, Gregor, where I was trying desperately to get some positives for Manchester United fans for once with you and Martin Samuel saying, come on, they've beaten Chelsea, that's a good result. And I think it was you or Martin said, look, they'll have a tough game against Bournemouth. And so it proved. Um but I am desperate to talk about Bournemouth because so often, and I'm going to do it later with another team, uh, but I want to talk about Bournemouth because mm. so often we talk about Manchester United when they get beaten. Um, Andoni Iraola tipped for the sack at certain points. Um, Jeff, what have you made of the kind of lack of sackings? Obviously, I know we had Paul Heckingbottom finally, but though in comparison with previous seasons, it does seem like clubs like Bournemouth with managers who they believe in, and obviously Iraola was a quick appointment. It looked like they planned it. Um, what do you make of that slight? Uh, added patience that there seems to be around at the minute. Well, Bournemouth had certainly planned in Iowa, that's uh, no question. And I was one of those who threw my hands in the air aghast that Gary O'Neill had been, you know, relieved of his duties when they brought in Iowa. But hey, you know, um, they knew better than I did because mm. he's he's done brilliantly. Lack of sackings, yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of the fact, if you look at the league table, that sides down near the bottom of the table, they're in the positions they expected to be in. You know, so the promoted sides were always going to be struggling down there, you know. Everton were always going to be struggling because of their point deduction. There are, there's nobody in the mix down near the foot of the table that you'd really be surprised about. You know, so sacking's normally happen when sides are massively underachieving. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm sure it's going to come, you know. Um, I think Steve Cooper needs a result very, very quickly, mm. um, which would be a shame. Um, but, yeah, people need time. Don't You can't just chop. It's, it's like the calls for, you know, Ten Hag's head right now. OK, going to change the manager once again, are they? But the players are going to be the same. Mm. The players are still going to be the ones that at the moment, some of them look like they really don't care. Um, you know, so I'm not sure what that what that achieves. Different managers, same players, ultimately, same outcome. Um, a Bournemouth, you know, Iriola's come in and he's got a change their style of play. You can see a pattern in the way he wants to play, which you can't see at Manchester United in the way that that Ten Hag side is playing. You know, so all credit to him, and I'll tell you what, he's got Dominic Solanke playing like he's a world beater at the mm. moment, you know? I mean, he's already got his highest tally of Premier League goals in any season um, because this Bournemouth side are creating chances, which maybe in the past they haven't done. I see massive parallels with, with Postacoglu and, and Andoni, actually. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. just before the uh, game against uh, Spurs, Postacoglu sort of tried to reset what, what he was about and, and re remind people he's he's not about entertainment for entertainment's sake. He believes that if you are incredibly attacking and everyone buys into it, that's how you win a football match. But you have to really buy into it and you have to take your chances and be incredibly confident about the system. 
give it more, not less. Victory comes from being attacking. And Iriola's been the same. It was a bit of a mess when he started because he was with a group of players he'd never played this way before. He wanted he wanted a high line, he wanted lots of pressing. And he, each successive match, the, you can see the players are buying into it a bit more and a bit more. And it must be quite freeing as a player because you're having to forget stuff you've learnt before about caution and um, having a defensive mindset. You know, you, you've got to put defence first. They don't do that at Bournemouth. It's all about if everyone presses together, it keeps the brave high line together and has that sense of um, lack of fear of reprisal if it goes wrong, if they try a Hollywood pass, basically it will work and as it has worked because what happened with Spurs was they'd had a poor run and Postacoglu was telling us that that poor run wasn't just because of injuries it was because the players just weren't quite you know they they weren't quite buying into it maybe they were thinking shouldn't we be more pragmatic and exactly the same thing has happened at Bournemouth they've come through their sticky patch where as you say he was under pressure but they've they've kept with him and that, that has enabled the players to think well if the owners are going to keep with him they must like this plan of action let's do it and there is an absolute joy and freedom now to the way Bournemouth play that is it's not quite at the levels of Spurs but it is really similar in terms of that whole every single player on the pitch no matter what their standard role is supposed to be so defenders get forward just like they do at Spurs Ryan Christie has never been a centre midfielder in his life mm. and he's well I was going to ask how in, how interesting and impressive is it to He's obviously made some signings. I looked it up. You know, Tyler Adams and other spent a decent amount of money in the summer, but it wasn't a raft of changes. A lot of the players he's using were and they've there been unlucky. Uh, some of them have been uh, Scott and Adams have both been injured. Yeah. after spending quite a lot of money on them, so yeah, he's had to be inventive. But as I, I was saying, Christie's been like a, one of the either a wide forward or a number ten through his career, and so like this commitment to playing on the front foot means he can he can play as like one of the two holding midfielders because actually his job is to is to press and to support and when they win the ball back to, to play forward quickly. Um and you almost see them playing forward to, to try and win the win the kind of the second balls, like mm. to counter press. That's what they that's what they're best that's what they're built for. Um and that's how they got the goals. I mean you have to say Man United gifted them Regulon's kind of little half right foot clip it is directly. Christmas time sorry <laughs> <laughs> McTominay a couple of times as well gifting possession away so they did they were kind of uh, given the opportunities to score but they were clinical yeah well Jeff, you touched on Manchester United briefly there when you're talking about Bournemouth and I wanted to ask you about them because again like I was saying with Tottenham it's a subject that we've covered almost endlessly uh, and as I joke when I ring Paul Hurst our Manchester United correspondent after these performances he often says to me Tom I don't know what to say I've got nothing I've got nothing no no analysis left to give so I'm asking if you have any analysis left to give uh, do you think this is more off the pitch or on the pitch I think I kind of know your answer with your kind of defense of Eric Ten Hag pre- previously well, no I, I think it's both to be brutally honest um, I, I'm not sure there's a plan I'm not sure there's a vision as to how they should be playing in contrast to, you know, Bournemouth or Spurs or Villa, where we know exactly what we're going to see. We don't know what we're going to see from Manchester United. That has to go down to the manager, you know. Um, Recruitment of players has been atrocious. Um, Team selection raises an eyebrow or two at at times, doesn't it? I mean, look, look at how Harry Maguire was cast out in the cold for so long. Now he's their key player. Uh, again, um, so 
lack of, of, of clear definition from the manager, I, I think, f- for sure. Um, and on the field, players, quite frankly, you know, just do not look to be to be giving it all. Um, now, sometimes a lack of confidence can make it look as if you're not trying to, you know, as hard as you, you should be. But I don't think that's the case in certain Manchester United players. Um, I, I think you know, I think Anthony Martial just... I mean, he looks like he'd rather be anywhere else. He, mm. he looks like he'd rather be out Christmas shopping than being on the field at Old Trafford, you know? Um, and, and yet, he's, he's chosen for a start. And that tells you... Well, what does it tell you? I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, Marcus Rashford, yeah, I get that he's not been performing. And and I, he doesn't want to play on the right-hand side, and he's been criticised for his attitude. Why are they playing him on the right-hand side? You know, if they can't play him on the left, play him down the middle. Because they haven't got anybody else to play down the middle. As we've seen, you know, they've spent a, a fortune on Rasmus Hoyland, who may turn out to be a good player, but he scored nine goals in 32 games for Atalanta. Now, bearing in mind that Atalanta score hundreds of goals, mm. <laughs> you know, nine in 32 is not a great return. Um, and, and yet they splashed a fortune out on on him. Marshall doesn't like, like he wants to play, so why not Why not give Rashford a run down the middle? Um, but look, these are all only little stopgap measures. There's, there's got to be a, an overview of the issues at, at Old Trafford. Um, and, and maybe that will come when Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos come in. Maybe. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Paul Hurst in the Times today... Um, James and I asked him to kind of rank where this was in terms of worst defeats post Alex Ferguson mm. and he, he, he put it in his top five which I was slightly surprised at because I almost feel like we've gone past the point of when they lose these kind of matches them being shocks or seismically bad performances I don't know what you guys think whether well, we've Paul got Bournemouth had, had never won at Old Trafford before mm. yeah, absolutely so, so in that sense I'm wrong you, have to, Paul, you almost have Paul to remind yourself right. that it's a shock that's like, what you know, I mean I mean it's yeah. not it's like yeah, this should be a shock, but actually, in the grand scheme of things, now because of all the reasons that Jeff has outlined there yeah. and the history of the you know Manchester United post Alex Ferguson, it's not that much of a surprise. Now. I mean, it's not quite the same thing. But earlier in the season, one of my sons is a Brighton supporter, and he'd gone to World Trafford with Brighton, and he went there with his, his friends, uh, his Brighton supporting friends, and they expected to win at mm-hmm. Old Trafford. Mm-hmm. You know, which is, is unheard of, really. Yeah, and they did. I'm sure they, they had did, a great yeah. day. Uh, well, if you're a Manchester United fan who can think of worse defeats, or maybe if you're a Bournemouth fan wanting to heap praise on Andoni Iriola, uh, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, we're talking Aston Villa, Fulham and Chelsea. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. 
wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined today by Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and our very special guest, Jeff Stelling, is with us too. To Villa Park and having spent last Thursday talking up Aston Villa as titled contenders, they backed up our supportive analysis with another victory, this time against Arsenal. Now, Alison, you wrote a piece last week and uh, I was helping, Was the idea was mine. So I'm going I'm <laughs> to give, give myself a little bit of praise because it doesn't always work like this, does it? Where you come up with an idea... This was before Aston Villa had games at home against Manchester City and Arsenal. And they'd been on this brilliant run. And I said, I need a journalist with real kind of nous and integrity and knowledge (laughs) to explain to me what it is Unai Emery does at Villa Park to make them so unbeatable. And we wrote this piece and uh, they've proved us right, haven't they? So what, what what are things that you picked out in that piece? What things did you discover? Have they kind of been showing in these big wins um, and particularly against Arsenal on Saturday? Well, you've got to separate out what Emery's done in general terms at Villa and then look at the fact that at home they have been astonishingly good. It's not just unbeaten, they're victory after victory after victory. But it shouldn't be a surprise for two reasons. One is throughout Emery's entire career, his home record has been better than average. You'd expect that at PSG or Arsenal, but wherever he's been, whatever size of club, their home form has been either astonishingly better or very much better than you would expect home form to be. So he clearly knows how to make a connection to the crowd, get them happy, get them entertained, and knows what how to deal with momentum. And also we shouldn't be surprised because um, Villa Park used to be one of the one of the grounds you'd be scared to go to. Hmm. It's one of the old-fashioned ones. It, the way it's built, it's a, the, the fans loom over you if they're in good voice. I mean, I've, I haven't been to Villa Park loads and loads of times but I've been when it's quiet and I've been when it's loud and when it's loud it's like oh my goodness why don't I do this all the time because mm-hmm. it's very intimidating because you are on top of the players and um, I spoke to Andy Townsend because he was in the building and uh, he was he played for Villa and he said he's not surprised because when he was playing for Villa it felt like the crowd could win you any game and it would sound like there were 70,000 when in fact they only had a 40,000 capacity. It's had this potential to be one of the cauldrons of English football. So if you've got an intelligent and emotionally intelligent manager who comes in and understands that, it's not just about passable football. It's about we're using you and you can help us along. And also I spoke to some sports psychologists and, and they... They said, you know, the type of noise a crowd gives is really important. And the noise currently at Villa Park is one of complete encouragement, whereas not so long ago, uh, under Stephen Gerrard, for example, the no- there was noise, but it was the sort of noise that lets the players know they've made a mistake or they're not doing good enough. Because it's, I mean, like many many crowds, they're they're, they're knowledgeable, they're intelligent. They've had the success of winning a European title. They know they're due more than what they've been getting. But if you can make give the crowd something, something um, grown up and intelligent and thought through to watch, they will respond in the right way and keep you keep you on that path. So it's a really good relationship they've got going. Yeah, Jeff, riffing off some of those ideas that Alison has talked about there, but also your view of Villa in general, because they're rivaling Tottenham, aren't they, for our favourite yeah. other team of the season so far? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought the win against Manchester City was the performance of the season by any Premier League side because how City got away with a 1-0 defeat is beyond me. Mm. Villa were light years ahead of them. Not as impressive. Unfortunate uh, 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 to win, I thought, against Arsenal. Mm. That'll be brutally... Goodness knows how the goal at the end is is, is ruled out. The Havertz goal. No idea. However, um, you know, I was going to say it's a great time to be a Villa fan. Of course it is. But you must sit there biting your nails throughout because that high line <laughs> is so high it's beyond belief um, spoken like a lower league football fan there I think well, absolutely <laughs> you, what are you doing up there son you're going sweet back there yeah, you yeah. know um, but the high line is beyond belief um, but they're playing great football the, the, the great thing for me about Emery is not just again that he, he has his methods, he has his ideals, and he's going to stick to them. But he improves players. And I think we've just, you know, seen that in so many positions at Villa Park. Look, he's got good players anyway. Martinez, he may not be everybody's cup of tea and goal, but he's a, a darn good goalkeeper, you know. So um, that, that's a good starting point. But people like Ezri Konza, I think, has improved out of all recognition this season, you can go through the team. Obviously, Ollie Watkins as well. Even at his age, John McGinn having one of the best seasons of his life. You know, I think he cost two point seven million pounds, something like that. And you see what teams are getting these days for seventy, eighty million pounds. Um, one of the all-time bargains. Um, so yeah, they're thrilling to watch, and I think thrilling is the word because. As I say, you're always slightly concerned if anybody gets in behind. Um, great going forward. Uh, and I, I just love the fact that he, he has this ideal. And like Postacoglu, that's the way they're going to play. Yeah. Um, whether it will carry on is well, that was, slightly debatable. That was my next question. Do you think they're more... We were talking last week after that victory against Manchester City that they now should be considered title contenders and you've got to get through that Christmas period. Do you think the top four contender is a more realistic label? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, at the moment, the way things are going at Villa Park, you know, um, they must stride out onto that pitch with the the confidence, the arrogance of a an Alan McAnally in his heyday. <laughs> um, uh, uh, they must believe that they're going to win every single game. It's how they recover when there are setbacks, and there will be setbacks uh, along the way. But I look at their bench, and I think, actually, that's a decent bench. You know, they've quietly built up a decent squad there. So, yeah, I do think top four is a much more realistic um, target than than the title. Um, and I, I think... With no disrespect to Spurs fans, I think in terms of squad, they are slightly better equipped to be top four than Tottenham are. That's obviously working on the assumption that the top three, in whichever order you like, uh, are going to be Manchester City, Arsenal and Liverpool. Mm. Gregor, Jeff's touched on a potential grievance for Arsenal with that disallowed goal. Do you think, as um, Jeff suggested there, that maybe a draw would have been a fair result or that Arsenal, were they a little bit poor, not quite at it? Villa or Villa the better team and kind of slightly overwhelmed them at home? No, I think Arsenal probably would have deserved the draw really. Odegaard missed two really good opportunities mm. as well. Um, and they created they created some really good chances. And just right, that the handball rule was pretty perplexing now. Oh, it's crazy. Um, potentially could have had a penalty. I think that would have been a bit soft. But 
Yeah, I think Arsenal could feel a little bit aggrieved. Um, but I totally agree about looking at their kind of squad depth now. And that's a, you know, that's a point we continue to make about th- these teams because it will be important, particularly when they're playing on Thursday nights in Europe as well. Moreno's coming back. Uh, Jacob Ramsey's back now. And how good a player was he when he was oh, firing? Um, Diaby's on the bench. Matty Cash is on the bench. They've been like really important starting players for, for him recent weeks. And so there's competition. Um, so I absolutely think they can maintain the push for the top four. I just think, I mean, the title is probably going to be a step too far. But they're on a they're on a, a kind of yeah. that journey. Why they are not? on that journey to competing because they have the they have the the finances, they have the wealth and the kind of the backing to to continue to progress. And they have a club that's built around Unai Emery and structured to support him in every single way that's needed. So they are on the right path. Jeff, just quickly making the most of having you here, what is your view of um, Mikel Arteta and Arsenal over the last kind of 18 months? They've really kind of risen to these kind of serious title contenders, but we've discussed this season how last year they were a bit like Villa and Tottenham. Everyone was like, wow, look at Arsenal. Oh my God, no, they surely can't, surely can't. And then, ah, oh no, they they bottled it. Whereas this season, they're up there again, but we're almost slightly ignoring them a little bit. Yeah, because they haven't been quite at the, the level of last season, certainly not in the, the early part of last season. You know, lost a couple of games, obviously, narrowly. You know, when they lost at Newcastle, controversially, they've lost at Villa, controversially as well. But they've ground out some results this season. I mean, I think the 1-0 at Brentford that they they had, that was a ground-out result. I'm not sure you said they actually ground out a win at Luton, but, you know, it was a narrow victory as well. I just don't think they've hit the heights. Odegaard has certainly not hit the heights of last season where I thought he was absolutely wonderful. Um, and, and you could point the finger at one or two others as well in that respect. But I do expect them to, to improve during the course of the season. Mm. I mean, everybody talks about the lack of someone to put the, back, the ball in the back of the net. And they're right. I mean, it, mm. it's blindingly obvious, isn't it? You know, I, I quite like Eddie and Ketia, You know, I think he's a, a decent player, certainly fit to play in the Premier League. Is he fit to lead the line for a Premier League winning side? Not quite so sure about that. Um, you know, you had to compare, obviously, the obvious comparison. You're going to look at, at strikers, Erling Haaland, Eddie Nketiah. There's a difference, obviously, and, 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 and that could be the difference between winning the title and not winning the title. But um, I think Arsenal will be absolutely on the premises throughout the season. You know, I love Declan Rice. I think he's a fantastic acquisition. I think they need to go out and buy somebody in January, and it's not easy. But I, I certainly think they'll be thereabouts. Well, I think Ed- Eddie and Kittier's ringtone should be Jeff Stelling going... Well, <laughs> 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 was being kind, you know? <laughs> or, in fairness, no, nobody's going to compare with, with Haaland, but, but that could be the difference between winning the title and not winning the title. And we might not have picked it. You, you, you could say, you know, Havertz or... You, you, it's the difference is not having somebody who's going to put the ball in the net week after week after week on a, a regular basis. I mean, we could talk about Liverpool and Darwin Nunez as well, you know, who he's a good player, but he doesn't score as many goals as he should score. And that, again, could be a difference when we come to calculate the points at the end of the season. Well, you've almost teed me up perfectly for my <laughs> final question. It's almost like you've done this for a while, ah. Jeff. Uh, we should, because we should know important comeback wins for Liverpool and Manchester mm. City. So my final question before you have to uh, rush off, Jeff, because I know you're a busy man. 
Who's going to win the title? Oh, my goodness. You knew it was coming. <laughs> You've done it yourself. You talked about Erling Haaland. I can't not ask you. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, and I, I, I said this somewhere else, um, I think this could go down to the last weekend of the season, the way things are now. And those big three, uh, you know, Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool, I find it really hard to separate them. A couple of weeks ago, I was, I was in the Man City camp just to edge out Arsenal. But when I look at Liverpool at the moment, I think they're winning games and not playing particularly well. They're having a little spell, 15, 20 minutes, winning a game. You know, the game that they won at Palace, you know, they did not play well. Um, and yet they've gone and won the game. And that's a great habit to have. Um, so can I sit on the fence? No, you absolutely <laughs> cannot. Hey, would be, would I, you let someone sit on the fence? Yeah, no. I, I think Manchester City will win the league, but I can see that Arsenal and Liverpool will be breathing down their necks right to the last weekend. Excellent. Jeff Stelling, thank you very much for joining us on the Game Podcast. I'll let you go with that, and thank you very much for answering the question, because normally these lot do sit on the fence. <laughs> So thanks to Jeff Stelling for joining us on the Game Podcast, but Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson are still with me, and we're going to talk about Fulham now. An amazing story, really, Alison. And again, referenced them us discussing things in the editing studio earlier, Uh, and Fulham were another topic that we talked about previously in the season when Marco Silva signed that new contract, and you wrote a piece saying this is a pivotal moment for the club, but they now need to find someone to score some goals. Do they need to find someone to score some goals? (laughs) Well, I mean... Probably it wouldn't harm them to, to, to splash some cash in January. But, I mean, Raul Jimenez, we, we, we know he, we know, we remember him being a great striker. Then he suffered his head injury. There is inevitably going to be a readjustment after that. Signing for Fulham gave him new impetus. Uh, if, if something life-changing happens to you, maybe a change of scene is also a good idea. I'll tell you, if for nothing, Fulham fans were getting impatient with the lack of goals from Jimenez. They were thinking that was a waste of that was a waste of money. Looks like a nice bloke, but he can't score. But suddenly, you know, it, as as it often takes with a striker, you just need one goal to make remi- remind you who you are and what your skill set is. And um, he's very popular at the club and everyone's delighted for him. And he now looks part of a fully functioning attacking unit. I think probably the theme of today's podcast has been if you have faith in the system, it will come good. And Marco Silva is an incredibly, uh, well, I'd put him in the in the category of incredibly avuncular managers. He is beloved of the players. He's always looking at the the positives, accentuating what they do well, not what they do badly. He's bought into Fulham as a club, a bit like Postacoglu at Spurs. They have a history of expansive football. The crowd go there. They don't want to see attritional 1-0 wins. They want to see something attractive. They've been playing quite attractively and not doing terribly well at times, but they've never not had that principle. They play out from the back. Um, they play measured football. They're, it's quite a different experience watching Fulham, actually. Uh, because it's about triangles and neat, 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 intelligent runs, thinking about the pass, um, just building up relationships on the pitch and a sort of uh, smile on your face type of football. And if you keep going with that and, you know, it's quite clear the club are going to stick with Marco Silva. So you the players can see this is what we're this is what we're doing. Um 
there are some underrated players at Fulham as well. I mean, Tom Kearney, I think he's been written off a lot as a player, even when he's supposedly fit, doesn't have 90 minutes in him. So how can you build a team around him? But at the moment they are, and he's not the, the most boisterous or the most physical or the fastest or anything, but he has one of the best brains in football. And he it would, one, one, <laughs> one, just one pass from him can unlock everything mm. and make the, the opposition think, where did that come from? We didn't see that. But of course, they're training with him every day. They know he can do that. So a lot of the stacks of Fulham goals we're now seeing, they scored nine goals in the Premier League the last time they went down. I mean, they've scored they've scored ten in the last ten minutes, virtually, haven't they? It's ridiculous. So, it, it's um, when when Fulham click, they are they they are a joy to watch. The one negative I would say is these two five nils have come without Tim Ream in the side, and I do wonder if that spells the end of Tim Ream. <laughs> well, we can we can come back to a Tim Tim Ream in memorium show perhaps later <laughs> in the season, Alison. You can vent your feelings. But Gregor, you were at um, the game when they beat Sheffield United earlier in the season. I remember talking about them then, and you speculating that maybe some of those players that Alison talked about were, were were good, but weren't quite enough that they needed to you know be be where they are now 10th and winning games 5-0 are you a little bit surprised by this run of results well the thing that the surprise is the goals are flowing now mm. because that was their issue I've, I always you know when we get the match list and I get a Fulham game I'm always really really happy because I think they're a great team to watch they as Alison say they do it's all about kind of working overloads and getting triangles particularly with uh, Anthony Robinson and Willian on the left Andreas Pereira drifting over. They have a really good for, like forward line, but they didn't have any anyone to, to finish it off. They they relied a lot upon Hamza wrote this in his report today. Relied a lot upon crosses into the box when Mitrovic was here. It uh, was at Fulham. Uh, I think only one team crossed more, put more, more balls in the box last season. Uh, so they've had to change that, and there's signs that they're really working out. I mean, the little the little flick by Jimenez for Willian's run. Uh, in the first half in this game was a joy and seeing him with confidence as well I know Alison's just talked about it but his little back heel against Forrest too it's a great story mm. great story because I think it was 33 games without a goal about 20 months in the Premier League that's enough to be written off Absolutely. entirely yeah. like and particularly after with some sadness particularly after what he you know his, his fractured skull feeling that he's just not the same player but if he returns to what he was then yeah I mean obviously they will still want to sign someone a striker in January, but it becomes far less important if he's if he's scoring the goals. Um, I would say, look, Tim Ream's been brilliant, but the return of Tosin uh, Adarabayo as well has been has been really important. He's been excellent, and he's been an excellent player for Fulham too. So, um, yeah, uh, it's. Oh, I'm I... just surprised the goals are coming, but they have always been a, a really good team to watch. Really, kind of, you know, highly functioning attacking team. Just they lacked they lacked the finisher. But let's not. I just quickly want to say we mustn't just. And it's my fault because I did. But just accentuate the prettiness of Fulham. What they have, they have they have Palinia who is still uh, tackling more than anyone else in Europe, which is an amazing base it's, to have in your midfield. How he's top of those stats every single. I see it in the office on Sky Sports amazing. News it's every amazing. single week. It comes round mm. and he's top of that list. But every that week. that counts an awful lot if you're a pretty team you mm. need someone in there like that and I, he is he is different to any player I've seen because usually he makes a sort of it's like an old-fashioned tackle it looks like I'm going to be on the cusp of giving away a free kick or being booked but he gets the ball and then he quickly 
half stands up and delivers the pass as well. Mm. It's 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 a and also they have Anthony Robinson who has flaws, but in the game against Liverpool at Anfield, which I think has set the tone for what's to come because they scored three times at Anfield, is he made more more interceptions than any player has in the Premier League since they started counting them. So they have players. Well, yeah, they're pretty to watch, but they're very good at winning possession or it, it disrupting the opposition. Happy times for Fulham then, heading into the Christmas period. Not so happy times for Chelsea fans. And we finish at Goodison Park. Another brilliant win for Sean Dyche and Everton. And sorry, Everton fans, I know I had my best intentions with Bournemouth earlier and said, no, I want to talk about the team that wins. I can't do it with this one. And that is because of Mauricio Pochettino and what he said after the game. £400 million spent in the summer, 12 new players and a squad valued at £1 billion. And yet Mauricio Pochettino says they need new players. Uh, I was editing yesterday with James and sometimes on a Sunday when there's not like a huge game, there's not like a big big six rivals or anything like that. And the results were great, don't get us wrong. But sometimes you're like, mm, what's the kind of storyline going to be to take it forward into the week? And then uh, James took the phone call from Paul Joyce and said, Pochettino said he needs to sign more players. What? <laughs> what? Have you ever th- heard anything more ridiculous? And I immediately thought of one man, Gregor Robertson. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to ask him this because it'll get him nice and revved up on a Monday morning. Gregor, they need more players, do they? They need the striker. <laughs> I mean, having said all the things I've said, yeah, they absolutely do. I mean, that says a lot about how, how they've spent the, the £1 billion and, and also the sort of how they've uh, spread those players around various positions on the pitch you need. But when they've got Amanda Broger leading the line uh, and Nicholas Jackson, who just doesn't look like he's going to be the one to, to do that, uh, I would say that, they, you know, yes, Nkunku is, is set to return, but they still, I think, need to need to sign a striker. It might not, it might not be someone who becomes available in January. What but, kind of a striker do you think? Because obviously you've watched... Chelsea and we, we have well, praised them recently in terms of style of play. What because they have got forwards, haven't they? You've mentioned one who Kruke. scores. <laughs> it's that's it. I mean, you, they're spending a hundred so million a, a quid coacher, on two midfielders. Nine. Ivan Tony should they be signing Ivan Tony in January? I don't know. I mean, it, uh, it would be an upgrade, but part of me thinks they should possibly be looking higher than that. If, if you're willing to spend a hundred million quid on on two separate midfielders, uh, you know that. that the striker, <laughs> the centre forward, is a focal point of the team. It's there's a reason why they're they they usually cost the most most and they're usually paid the most. It's because the hardest thing to do in football is to be a, a consistent goal scorer. And Chelsea have signed players who have shown that they might be that. They just need to sign someone who who is that. Alison, when managers are under pressure, as Pochettino now is after losing to Manchester United and uh, Everton, you, how do these kind of comments in press conferences? How do they play out? Because for us in the media, they're they're a great talking point, as I'm proving by mentioning it on this podcast. But in terms of their standing within, you know, the club and their position, it, I always feel to me, oh, why have you said that? You're not helping yourself here because the the form is difficult. Or is it actually a case that he's distracted from talking about them being a bit crap on the pitch? Well, that, what I what I thought was interesting was that Pochettino kept using the word reality yeah. which made him sound like a Sean Dyche impersonation act but he, it it was like and and and, and you're mentioning Sean Dyche Sean Dyche used to say that all the time with Burnley actually because he was reminding everybody uh well actually we, we were good you know I've got this team qualifying for Europe but the reality is we have a very small budget and these are all the problems we have to overcome 
please don't forget the reality of what it's like to be in charge of a club like Burnley. Whereas Pochettino's introducing the word reality at a club like Chelsea, which spent, the new owners have spent a billion quid. They had a very busy summer. And they brought in a manager that, they brought him in for a reason. They didn't, they brought him in, not for what he did at PSG, although it helps, I think it helps, as it helped Emery, it helps as a person to experience what it's like being at PSG and having to manage egos and strange expectations in a curious league, I would say. So it's good for you. It's good for your soul to have been at PSG. But they didn't really hire him for that. They hired him for what he'd done at um, Spurs, which was... uh, It wasn't about big budgets at Spurs. It was about creating um, a good environment where he, he, he would look after younger players, bring them through... The vibe was good overall um, until the very end at Spurs. Um, and he was there for a while and he, he, he was a nurturer and someone that bought into a project. And the, the owners of Chelsea want something. They want to think more long term. They don't want to have to constantly throw money at it. They want to be able to... And we have mentioned many times on this podcast how how deep their academy system is. They should be bringing through... And they do, but they're all over the world, Chelsea Chelsea Academy players are just not always at Chelsea but they brought him through that and and now it's so dysfunctional at Chelsea that he's having to Pochettino is having to, to remind the media and the people behind the scenes at the club that the, the reality for him is not the one that they promised him it's not the one he expected he's letting them know he's having to deal with stuff he didn't expect to have to deal with and the amount of injuries and then more injuries are coming in. I mean, mm. it's it's very, very, very strange that there is this sort of conveyor belt of problems with... Epitomised by Rhys James. But, but is, I, why? Right. why is this I, happening? I think he's right, though. Like, he, I think he... Expl- it, it was interesting. His quotes were really interesting. I think, you know, particularly for... You know, someone's Argentinian to explain it so, so very well and, and he's in another language. He said, the perception is here... You could almost imagine him putting his hands like one one hand there and another hand <laughs> apart, mm. saying the perception is here and the the reality is here. And he's saying like, if we're missing something in the middle, maybe we need to improve our reality. So like, they they've spent a billion pa- billion pounds, but they've not. I don't think they've spent it very well. Like we need to start accepting that. People just say that oh, they spent a billion pounds, they should be competing. Yeah, they should if they spent it well, mm. but they haven't. The team he has on the pitch are not good enough. He's right. The perception is that they've got a, a billion pounds team, a, a billion pound like squad. They have in financial terms, but they don't have in football in terms. Really, though, if you look, if you go, if you no go through chance. player by th- no player th- through player that took to the field at the weekend, they're all. You could make a case for all of them: their CVs, their past experience, what you actually see them doing. They're all. They're all top level players. None of none of whom none of whom played abysmally. They're just not they're just not a team at the moment, Chelsea. Okay, and that's well, down well, so largely look, to Pochettino. Sanchez, Brighton were willing to let go and go. He's he's been he's been actually quite good. Uh Cucurella, no. But yes, it was, yes. Was Cucurella's tipped, been a bright, a bright spot. He was tipped him. as one of the you know. But when he star. when when they paid fifty million pounds for him, everyone went, What? Hmm. 
Okay, so they've overspent on him as a minimum. Barry Ashili, we've not seen enough of, and he's young and he's potential. De Sassi, we've not seen enough of to suggest he's a centre-half and a team who can compete for the Premier League title. Rhys James is a world-class player, but he's always injured. Conor Gallagher is a player of potential. He's not someone you build your team around. Caicedo, okay, they overspent for him, but he's a great player. Mudrick, overspent for him wildly. I've not seen anything to suggest that he's a player who's going to be good enough in a, in a Premier League title-winning team. Uh, Enzo Fernandez, you can say the same. They've overspent for all of these players. Mm. So while you say Conor, uh, Cole Palmer has been a bright spark, Broja's come through the academy, but there have been players who've come through the academy who were better than Amanda, Amanda Broja, like, and they've sold them, yeah. just, so to, you, just to balance the books. So, so they're overspent, they're flogging their academy stars to balance the books. And the team, used to, yeah, the, the kind of bold number is a billion, a billion pounds. But that is not what the squad represents. Yeah, well, we were talking earlier with Jeff about managers getting time. Two questions just to finish, and you can answer them back to back. Should he get as much time as he wants? And will he be in charge at the end of the season? You can only get enough... You should get time. You can only get enough time if you get results to buy that time. That's a, that's kind of a convoluted way of saying you need to get some results to stay in the job. Yeah. So as long as he gets enough results, which in my view is staying in the top half of the table. But I know that's think, not what Chelsea's ambitions do think, are. Do you think at the end of the season he'll be the manager? Yeah, although it's getting kind of it's getting a bit hairy, but I think he is I, I think he should be. Alison. I think he'll probably last the season, but I think there'll be a big reassessment in the summer because he isn't it's one thing to go through the team and say oh they've overspent they've overspent yes of course there are players in that team that are not worth the money they spent but if you strip away the money they're, a de- they're all decent players but the money is the perception Where, he's yeah, talking about yeah but the, a manager should be able to forget the price tag and find a way to motivate those players and he's not doing that well, they do, they're not a cohesive unit. They're not. He definitely needs some results, Gregor. He's even you were prepared to admit. And they are home against Sheffield United on Saturday. Dare I say that if they lose that one, then perhaps Mauricio Pochettino might be in a bit of trouble. But before that, we've got a massive week of Champions League football. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss all that. Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, and of course, Jeff Stelling, thank you very much for joining me. And thank you too for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.